Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I'm joined by my sister, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on the National Treasure Book of Secrets film from 2007. It's the second National Treasure movie, and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It was fun. It was very similar in a lot of respects to the first film. Mm-hmm. I think if you were to kind of map out the plot of both of them, they hit more or less the same kind of notes in different ways in the two films at about the same points. Yeah. Complete with the, they had a heist in the first one where they had to go into a big public event and steal something. Here they go into a big public event and kidnap the president. Mm -hmm. They had the big cavernous underground thing in the first one. Mm -hmm. Same thing here. Oh, they're getting trapped. Can they get out? You know. And I think whenever you do a sequel, a lot of those things are just going to happen. And not by accident, by design. Well, and yeah, you really can, in some respects, go beat by beat in terms of we start with flashback isn't quite the phrase for it. the big story. Yeah. What's the legend they're following this time? Yeah. You know, and then what's the reveal of the the new clue that really kicks this treasure hunt going? Mm -hmm. We have to have an overseas element or clue that we have to go find. Mm -hmm. I thought this time it was entertaining. Yeah, when the clue is the Statue of Liberty and they wind up over in Paris, and it makes perfect sense, Mm -hmm. I thought that was a lot of fun. That diving over into a scene over in London for a little bit Mm -hmm. was good. The big car chase after it, not so much. I mean, it was a good car chase, but I'm thinking, okay, you've got a couple of Americans driving on the wrong side of the road that they're not used to in a city they're not used to. And they stay on what for theirs the correct side of the road surprisingly well. When driving on the wrong side of the road would have gotten them out of trouble faster. Well, and they also never got stuck of, we took a wrong turn and we're boxed in. Yeah. I mean, to me, driving around in London, you take a wrong turn, it's a dead end. Yeah. So I was surprised by that. But that's, you know, narrative convenience of films, go figure. Yeah, they they didn't really get lost in London. They didn't get lost, but I could never really tell where they were, except for a couple of, okay, they're, they're by Parliament and Big Ben and stuff like that, a couple yeah. of those shots. There were a few things that they introduced to add a couple of parallels. We finally meet Ben Gates' mother, mm-hmm. but that's to set up his parents' failed relationship and his relationship, mm-hmm. which at that point was failing. But I felt like it was failing as a matter of convenience to the plot. Not only a matter of convenience, I almost wondered if it was a matter of negotiating tactics for casting. For me, it was more of a, at one point when they need to go and retrieve a clue, if their relationship hadn't been failing, they wouldn't have had the character they needed to interact with, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Definitely, I think that was a part of it. But there was also an aspect of they could have told this same story without the female love interest from the first movie, replaced with a new female love interest. That's how you get the other guy to get to the clue. Mm -hmm. You've got the whole romance angle again. Yeah. And the only 
change I think you would have needed to make to the parents' storyline was that wasn't my first wife kind of mm-hmm. line or something like that. So I couldn't tell how much was scheduling issues or how much was this was just the story they wanted to write. Was it did they write it this way and say this is what we want to do or did they wind up with this because of other issues? Yeah. See, there were aspects of it that part of me is like, maybe if I think on it more, it'll make more sense to me, or maybe I've just already overthought it. Such as? Well, part of this is all seeming to come out of a legend that was sparked by a guy who was shipwrecked, rescued by Native Americans, taken to the city of gold in South Dakota. Yeah, there there is an aspect of when you're going for what seems to be the Mayan city of gold, yeah. El Dorado, that sort of a thing, whichever, you know, specific. And it's it's in South Dakota, underground. Yeah. It's like, did they move it? That doesn't seem to be where it ought to have been. And particularly for it to be pre-colonial America, how would people have gotten that far inland yeah. at that time and back? Because it's not just they got there and they found it, but they left word. And this was at a point where the Western United States simply wasn't. Yeah. So yeah, there is a definite anachronism there. For me, that was kind of the big hang-up, was I kept trying to reconcile South Dakota being with what otherwise felt like a coastal story. But I felt like they probably felt, okay, we did New England and coastal in the first movie, so we need to move away from coastal this story. Where would you have moved it to? New Mexico. Still wind up to west. Yeah, but you've got the Gulf of Mexico. I would almost go somewhere along the Mississippi. Again, Mm -hmm. classic Americana. Yeah. I was saying if they still wanted to go with their city of gold. Even then, I think you could almost make it work and just go with the the Aztec or whichever Mm -hmm. culture you wanted to attribute it to stretched further into the United States at that point, which is not too far-fetched. Yeah, yeah. So you could have made that work. Yeah. I think if you ditched that aspect, the other place to center part of the story would be not this big underground cavernous thing, of course, Chicago. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you start doing a sequel to something like National Treasure, which was so based on the Revolutionary War, the Founding Fathers, etc. I mean, at that point, it's just maybe we can make two or three movies on Mm -hmm. it. These days, can we do a full franchise on it? Because again, there's a TV series based on this. You want to plan out your steps incrementally, and then it's like, okay, what was the next phase of America, and what's the big thing on Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Jumping to the Civil War seems like you're skipping over a few things. Yeah. But Civil War is certainly a major landing point for these types of stories. I think there's some other go-to things, because it almost feels like the next movie on this would almost have to be World War I. Because what other war? Because they seem to be centering on wars. And yeah, I think that was a, a questionable decision. Well, they seem to be going for the multi-billion-dollar global treasures, if you will. Yes. Well, at least this one was Native American treasure, I guess would be the yeah, way, yeah. versus international stolen goods. Yeah, which is what the first one was. Because I was thinking with your Chicago idea. I mean, it would be interesting to find the equivalent of Al Capone's vault. I would almost go with the World's Fair and something was was hidden in one of those Mm -hmm. and whatever has some few remaining structures. Yeah. 
one of the things I always thought was kind of cool about the All-Star Squadron comic book series in the 80s is it was a period piece set in World War II, and the headquarters for the All-Star Squadron was based out of, I think it was the New York World's Fair. Mm. They had this big spherical building and something that, as I recall, looked kind of sort of like the Washington Monument. And I don't remember the specifics. Again, I read these back in the yeah. 80s. Great comics and stuff, though. But again, there are a couple of things like that that you could pick and choose interesting geographical aspects of history, cultural points in time of history, mm-hmm. and kind of slowly work your way forward. Not that you have to go forward, but if you're going to go bouncing around in time, you've got to kind of figure a way to make that work. Well, this one edged between financial and cultural treasures. And I felt a different way than the first one did. In terms of this one was talking about linguistic finds that would unlock languages. I think that was, once we got there, they realized that. Yes, yes. Throughout the entire film, it was- Gold, gold, gold. gold. You're going to be rich. Yes, yes. But when we found the first treasure, it felt like it was- Stuff we already know, with the exception of scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. Which they gloss completely over. That's a major historical and intellectual find. Yes. Everything else is, oh, it's just a museum piece. Yeah, but I love the, you can glance at it and know it's a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. Well, if you're a National Archivist, of course you would just know those things, he I said mean, facetiously. I don't know, maybe it's got the Dewey Decimal Code on it that says it came from, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you may as well have put the tabula rasa in there and a few other things for that matter. There were a few aspects of that first movie's treasures that were a little over the top. How'd they get them in there? I Well, for that matter, how do you build a city inside a mountain of gold? Yeah. How do you do that? How do you build the waterways? How you build the doorways that with the big boulders and how you build the original doorway we enter through? I think the argument there is, well, if they could build the pyramids. Yeah, and that's what frustrates me. Yes, yes. But, I mean, on the one hand, it frustrates me even in the moment, and yet it is fun to watch. Yeah, but I could see, and I I know this movie would not be for everybody. Yeah. Something that's got, like, the classic Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with, okay, you got to get past all the booby traps, swap the thing for the statue, get out. That's your opening kind of sequence, or here when you get to the big grand underground cavernous treasure things. Then the rest of the movie is X centuries earlier with them building that, setting all that up. How do they do this? Who tried to do the first heist? How did that not work? I want to know why everything is always at the perfect point in the rotting cycle, that it breaks down when our people get there. Or- Shortly thereafter. You know what I mean, though. They can get the first few steps, then it starts falling apart. Yeah. And again, it hadn't been touched, so there's no additional weight on it. I get it. But it would be hilarious if one of these things got discovered when the thing broke down and suddenly this lake emptied out or was town, this, this, this valley was flooded or something. Where did all this come from? They chase it back and, well, look at this. That'd be funny. Yeah. That would actually be a hilarious series of books if the mysteries they're chasing is not the treasure map to find the treasure, but the lake that's suddenly full, the lake that's suddenly empty, and- Yeah. 
They're reverse engineering to the treasure, effectively. They're kind of the Army Corps of Engineers having to go fix a disaster and realizing, mm-hmm. wait, this disaster's got this hidden treasure. What's this backstory? And uncovering history because of it. Working yeah. working the treasure hunt backwards. Yeah. You know, where did this come from? How did it all get here? That would be it'd be tough to pull off, but it'd be hilarious. It would be. Yeah. Well, right now there's a special that our mom was watching on TV that was a series about lakes where the water is dropping such that they're finding previous dams. Mm. And it's kind of a, look, this dam was built for the ages. They thought it would survive everything. Now it's ruins and pieces on what is now the shoreline, but had been 40 feet out from the shoreline and underwater, that kind of thing. Well, in water is something you don't mess with in terms of just the sheer destructive power when it's let loose, but also the slow erosion even when it's not let loose and stuff. Yet there didn't seem to be any particular impact of them letting loose the water, bottling it back up or whatever. It amazes me in fictional universes how little mold there is, how little rust there is. But how many spider webs there are, or cobwebs. Yes! And you know, they're not very flammable. Well, and I was also, when they, they're, they're kidnapping the president, it's through this, this hidden cavern in Mount Vernon and such, that really the president, it felt like, should have known about, but, you know, secret knowledge. And he's going through all these cobwebs and stuff and doesn't seem the least bit bothered by it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll just casually move that aside. Yeah. In his tuxedo, yeah. Bruce Greenwood did a good job as the president. I thought it was fun. He's a great actor. He is. He did a panel- Dallas. Up in, yeah, up in Dallas at one of those conventions. And I wish I could remember the exact phrasing he used, but he was basically talking about acting from the inside versus the outside. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that most of the shoots he does, one camera, three cameras at most. So everything is coming from the inside out because you know where the cameras are, you know what the angles are. Yeah. But then he did a show that was trying to recreate that live experience and that reality show experience. And they had like seven or eight cameras at all kinds of angles. And you weren't sure which camera to play to at that point. Right. So he said, that's when you start doing this whole from the outside thing. And you realize 360 degrees matter. Yeah, he's a very insightful and I think an actor who really thinks about his craft and does it intentionally. And he's very articulate about it. Yes. Which- And open to sharing the knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought that panel we saw of him at one of those Dallas conventions was a really good panel. Yeah. He gave the typical kind of, you know, answers the fans would want, but also it was a mini course in acting. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. And again, I think a lot of the people they had in this cast were of that caliber Mm -hmm. where they're just really good actors. Mm -hmm. You know, Ed Harris is the bad guy. Yeah. I thought he did a terrific job. Well, and he had some really interesting moments to play when we got into that big cavern. When he's the first one off of one of the booby traps. Yeah. And it's, does he proceed alone? Which, honestly, that's a pretty bad guy move. Proceed on well, your own. And he's found a knife. So, does he literally cut off the escape yes, route yes. for the others? They use those scenes in that part of the movie to really point out this is not the same kind of bad guy we had in the first film. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing things for a completely different reason. And- 
really, if you had flipped the bad guys between the two films, both films would be very different. Yes. The first almost would not have happened because this guy is more of a true treasure hunter. Mm-hmm. He wants it for the credit, the, the cultural impact, all that kind of a stuff to, to have his family's leave its mark in history. Yeah. Which would have been very conducive to Ben Gates' whole arc in the first movie. Yeah. Whereas the bad guy from that film was a very bad guy. Yeah. And in this film, would have cut the ladder and stuff, would have done a number of things, would have left them to die, you know. The first moment of the, okay, we're we're close to the treasure, we're in the big area, where it's, okay, let's let you know from here on out, the bad guys are undeniably different, mm-hmm. was when the door got locked behind them. Mm-hmm. Because the bad guy was with us this time. Yes. And last time, the bad guy was the one who basically locked, locked the, the door. door on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am curious how much of the writing for this did they basically take the outline of the first, whether they had to reconstruct it or not, and then just said, "Okay, it went left here. We'll go right." Or it went left here. That worked. Let's keep going left. Mm-hmm. You know, let's. Were they? How much were they trying to intentionally not mirror or duplicate the first? Because this didn't feel like a rehash. No, it didn't. But again, it had so many direct parallels that if you take the plot points to a high enough abstract enough level, you see all those parallels clear as day. Yeah. So I I thought that was- Well, we had the same moment for Abigail of- you're crazy. There's no hidden message on the paper. Yes, yes. Wait, what is it I see there? It plays there? out a little differently. We even get the shot of the J. Edgar Hoover building at one point. Yes, yes. And some of that is callbacks yes. to the first. Yes, Which, again, you're doing a sequel. You you are, I don't say obligated to do that, but when you've got a sequel and they don't do any of those things, yeah, you start to wonder, why did I watch this? This isn't what I came back for. Well, and- as you say, it plays out differently in this one, but when Abigail has that moment of seeing it, and she's the one who sees it this time very mm-hmm. clearly, when Ben basically isn't paying attention, and she's basically humoring him, which both times, I'd yeah. say, she was humoring him at that point. But in both movies, that's the she's on board moment. Yes. Yeah, it's a turning point of sorts for her character in mm-hmm. terms of she's in on the adventure. Yeah. Well, and also- the times where they're interacting either at the gala in the first movie mm-hmm. or in Buckingham Palace in this one. That was great. I loved so much about that Buckingham Palace scene. Yeah, that had some great stuff. The guard. Uh, Peter Woodward, who's the son of- um, Edward Woodward? Edward Woodward from The Equalizer. But Peter was also on Crusade, the spinoff of Babylon 5. Uh Great actor. Not a huge part here, but he did well. Oh, he had a great line uh, when Nicolas Cage is on the banister, uh, which was basically unhand the banister. Mm, Yeah. And it's just kind of a, you are not going to slide down the banister in Buckingham Palace. I mean, it was was classic scene in every sense. There are a number of places where they have a good sense of humor about things. And a few where it's like, this would never have happened in the real world. Oh, yeah. The guy doing the book signing, watching his car getting towed. <laughs> you would not have parked where they're towing it right out the front window. Yes, yes. No n- no bookstore would, would have that. No. But it was 
fun. It served the moment. Well, and I did love the whole explanation for why the car got towed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you know how much taxes there are in $5 million? $6 million. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was good. Well, and I liked how with Riley, they, I don't want to say closed off his storyline, but finally gave him a bit more of a happy ending at the yes. end. Yeah. It was tacked on, and you, you take those 20 seconds out, and he no longer has it, but he got it. Well, but going back to the beat for beat, in both movies, he had one thing he knew that yes. they didn't. And is it a right about, it felt like the same point in the film. You know. And not to say it's literally at the exact moment no, or whatever. It, it might have been off by 20 minutes, but it felt like yeah. about the same. It's like, yep, he knows Daylight Savings Time there, and here he knows yeah. the president's book or what have you. But you've got to give the character a reason to be there. Yes. And I think they really beat the drum a few times, not too many, but just enough of he was being seen as the sidekick of, mm -hmm. and to finally get at the end of, no, you're the guy. But I did like when he had the line of, but I would have already believed you. Yes. If the shoe'd been on the other foot, you'd have had less and I'd have already bought in by now. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, everyone should have a person like that in their life. Someone who doesn't need a thousand pieces of evidence to believe what you're pitching and doesn't need you to spend five hours convincing them. Someone who simply says, I'm on your side. Yeah. I'm there for you. Well, and if I were to do a TV show based on this, I would be tempted to use him as the anchor character. Mm. Not to say the lead character. Mm -hmm. He could just as easily be the professor of a group of people who go have the adventures or something like that. But taking him from second fiddle of these movies to being either mentor or the lead of a mm -hmm. show could be very interesting. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Yeah, yeah. So- like I said, I enjoyed this. I definitely saw numerous parallels between the two. Not in a bad way, not in a great way, but just- But in a good way for me. In an expected way for a sequel. I guess my point, though, is all the things I liked about the first yes. movie. Yes, yes. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. They kept the spirit, the intent, the tone, the style of the first movie without duplicating the first movie or veering too far away from it. Mm -hmm. And those are very- can be very narrow parameters. Because mm -hmm. I think we've all seen that sequel where it's the same movie as the first. Yeah. You know, change a name or two, new coat of paint, but there's nothing new here. Here, there was some new stuff, some interesting yeah. twists, but not so far that it's unrecognizable from the first. So they did a good job with that. Again, I've heard they may do a third. I, I knew at one point they were planning to. I don't know if that's still on the table or not. Interesting. But it does make me wonder what would be the next crucial moment of American history to go to after the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And I think going towards a world war where America is now on the international stage, and at which point I would almost have the antagonist be the Ben Gates of England or Russia or China or Japan or somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And pick that based on which point in history you're doing and how kind of that would be a counterpoint to the now and the then. Yeah. But again, they've got a first season of a show based on this. I have no idea how it connects to this other than the title. I'm curious about it. And I'm hoping it's in the same narrative universe mm -hmm. and that they, in the pilot, sell that connection both believably, entertainably, and satisfactorily. Yeah. 
because I think we've all seen a couple of, of TV shows based on films where it's just picking up for where the film left off, or how did you get here from there? Yeah. So, but again, I thought this was a lot of fun. If there's a third film, I'd be back for it. Me too. Now, whether they'd get in the cast back for it or not, I don't know, but I also liked how we got one or two of the FBI agents again. Yeah. Me too. I did like that. So there was some continuity there, some history there. Harvey Keitel does well on that one. He does. It's a good character for him. Yeah. Anything else? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.